Just before you listen to this podcast, a quick shout out to say that we are also on Patreon and you can follow the podcast there and get access to a new podcast that we're doing called the War Criminals Book Club. Sounds intriguing. Check us out over on Patreon where we're under asymmetrical haircuts. The jurisdiction that the ICC has over the crime of aggression is much more limited than the one that it has over all the other crimes. That was a political concession that we had to make in Kampala and that I decided to make in putting the text before the conference that I did. Now, of course, today, this is coming back to haunt us. Medieval crimes are being committed. I come with clean hands. Victims of horrific crimes want justice. We don't have anything better than this. This is Asymmetrical Haircuts, your international justice podcast with Janet Anderson and Stephanie Vandenberg. All rise. Just a quick intervention to say that at the end of the podcast, Janet and I will discuss the latest addition to the justice institutions in The Hague, because after we recorded this, it suddenly came out. The EU announced that there would be an international center for the prosecution of the crime of aggression in Ukraine. And we will give you more of the details that we know now, but we'll go on with the podcast for now. Hi, Steph. Hi, Janet. Well, there's only one international court right now that's actually able to hold leaders individually criminally responsible for waging aggressive war, and that's the International Criminal Court based here in The Hague. But these aggression prosecutions at the ICC not only have never actually happened yet, but they're all kind of hedged around with these but, uh, well, maybe it doesn't quite work. So I thought I'd ask you, Steph, to help summarise where we are with aggression at the ICC and what's going on. It was a long road, wasn't it, to get there? Absolutely. And you just passed me a very hot potato with this. But I have done the background research. So in 2010, eight years after the ICC became a legal reality, there was a review of the Rome Statute. And in very intense negotiations in Kampala, they agreed to the so-called Kampala Amendment, which made the crime of aggression part of the Rome Statute or came into the Rome Statute. And there the crime of aggression is defined as the planning, preparation, initiation, or execution by a person in a position effectively to exercise control over or to direct the political or military action of a state of an act of aggression, which by its character, gravity, and scale constitutes a manifest violation of the Charter of the United Nations. Yeah, I, I just wanted to really, really kind of point up that manifest violation because that keeps on coming back in the things that I come up with. So carry on. But apart from instilling this in the Rome Statute, they also amended Article 15 bis, which controls when the court can exercise jurisdiction and, and added it so that it cannot exercise blanket jurisdiction over the crime of aggression. And so it is now amended to say that the court can exercise its jurisdiction over the crime of aggression when committed by that state's nationals or on that state's territory, and that state being the state who has ratified or um, these amended indictments. So you really have to opt into this. And, and I know you've got more to say again. And I think they added another hurdle that when they agreed this in 2010, they had to have two thirds of the court agree to it by 2017. Uh, in the end, I think they eventually all agreed on it and it became a legal reality in 2018. And now I hope our guest is not going to fact check me. 
Okay. Well, we'll come to our guest, and our guest is really special because he's from Liechtenstein, and Liechtenstein has been at the centre of this discussion. I've never been to a discussion on aggression without having some person from Liechtenstein there, because they seem to have taken it on board as their their space. But just to say, the reason why we're discussing it right now is not just because it's all ancient history, but because we've got this other huge discussion going on that you can see going on in the blogosphere and all over these different different meetings about whether there should be a special tribunal for the crime of aggression. A new acronym for us, an STCOA, STCOA, should be set up for Ukraine. And the issues are about whether to make it international, how international it would have to be, how it would deal with immunity, what that says about the aggression provision at the ICC. We're meant to do now a summary of this debate, but I think we should actually introduce our guest first. So Stephanie, who have we got? We have got with us the Liechtenstein ambassador at the UN. I guess an ambassador is His Excellency. His Excellency Christian Venemasser of Liechtenstein, as Janet said, the country most associated with the whole debate on the crime of aggression in the ICC, and also carving out a role for itself in the debate about aggression and how it could be used for Ukraine. Hi, welcome, Christian. It's uh, very good to be here with you. Can we call you Christian or should we shall call you Mr. Ambassador? <laughs> No, you can call me by my name. That's really okay. And before we ask you our first question, Christian, I just want to give Steph another opportunity to do her amazing Stephopedia line. And just, you know, two two moments, please. What's the consensus at the moment? Or where are we on this, this idea of Ukraine having a special tribunal, Steph? You know, from your Reuters perspective, writing on it day in, day out, where are we? From my Reuters perspective, we are at the point where Ukraine really, really wants this aggression tribunal. The US is also supporting it, but kind of being in the background. And a lot of EU states are also vocally supporting it, at least the parliaments and also the governments. And what has kind of seemed to have emerged now, we also heard in our discussion with Bess van Schaak in our earlier podcast, is that the Netherlands is now kind of promoting this idea of having an interim office of the prosecutor for this tribunal, which will be set up already to start or to have that operate out of The Hague. And this is where we get into the much more complicated territory, because the reason why you would have this interim office of the prosecutor is because they don't quite know yet what kind of tribunal we will have. Do you want to have it a UN tribunal, which would make it definitely international and recognized by everybody? Is it going to be if you not get, get enough support by the UN General Assembly, because it won't go through the Security Council, because Russia has a veto, so that's a no-go, so you'd have to go to the General Assembly. Does it get enough support? If it doesn't have enough support, then we're going to go down. Maybe it's going to be the European Union. Maybe it's going to be the Council of Europe. Maybe you're going to do it with bilateral agreements. You know, there's lots of questions that we'll touch on also later in this podcast. One of them is, what do you do with immunity? Is it going to be hybrid? Are you going to include Ukrainian law? How are you going to do that? All these questions are swirling around. But what it seems to be mainly now is this idea that, yes, we should have this. And to show that we mean business, we're going to try and instill this uh, interim office of the prosecutor. And we want it in The Hague because The Hague, City of Peace and Justice, it gives it a kind of immediate standing. 
have also heard another reason for having it in The Hague is to avoid the question mark of exactly how it would work together with the ICC. And so you can actually have some real coordination because as we're going to come to later, there is a question over how this works with the ICC's part on aggression. But let's ask Christian to start with, I mean, you know, wind the clock back for us because you were there and you you know exactly how this has, has come about. It was always seen as something that should come and you worked really hard to make it happen. But did you always know when you were negotiating this that it was going to be a tough sell to get states to sign up to this? You're talking about Kampala, of course, and um, I'm happy to unpack that uh, a little bit. It's, um, you know, it can be simplified and I think broken down. You know, aggression certainly was one of the most difficult issues. And when we went into Kampala, most people didn't think we would come out of Kampala with an agreement. So that's, I think, the first point to make. The, The second is this really has these two pillars. The one is the definition that you read out, the other is the jurisdictional regime. And for me, as you know, the president of that conference, and in a way, as, as the architect of the package, the definition was the key issue. And that was actually agreed before the conference. But of course, we had to chaperone this through the conference. The question of the jurisdictional regime was very, very complex indeed, and it has a solution that is uh, certainly imperfect and that you know has a has a big carve out in it. So the jurisdiction that the ICC has over the crime of aggression is much more limited than the one that it has over all the other crimes. That was a political concession that we had to make in Kampala, and that I decided to make in putting the text before the conference that I did because I felt it was very important to have something that is comprehensive and to have something that would allow the court to exercise its jurisdiction limited as it will be. Now, of course, today, this is coming back to haunt us in a way, because people are, you know, rightfully asking the question, well, what about Ukraine? And we do believe very strongly that we need to address this by setting up an alternative mechanism, because it is legally clear that the ICC cannot do this. Okay, okay. Let's just stop you there for a moment. Alternative mechanism. Let's really unpack what the, you know, you you use these lovely diplomatic phrases, carve out and politically necessary to do this. But it basically means, I've always explained it to people, it means that if Liechtenstein invades Belgium, who are two countries who've signed up to it, then it works. But otherwise, no countries which normally invade other countries or normally get involved with with any kind of form of sort of putting their troops on the ground, because you don't put your troops on the ground, nor does Belgium so much. I mean, no other countries can actually be be involved in this. They, you know, the normal countries, France, the UK, both members of the ICC have not signed up to this. That's correct, isn't it? Yeah, these are states that have not ratified the Kampala amendments. That is correct. And what is also correct is that the court has competence now only in a conflict between two state parties. That is clear. That is the big concession that was made in Kampala. And that's why the ICC cannot exercise jurisdiction in the in the case of Ukraine. Just a question that came up one while we were preparing this. So Liechtenstein has ratified the Kampala amendments. So you can't happen on your territory or by your nationals. So does that mean that if Liechtenstein somehow gets really, really grandiose ideas and wants to invade, shall we say, let's pick a state that is a 
member state but hasn't ratified. You know, let's pick the UK. If you would want to invade the UK by Liechtenstein or you tried, are your nationals then prosecutable by the ICC? No, yes, because we have ratified Kampala. But, you know, maybe maybe you should pick your examples a bit differently and look at states that have armed forces, which we don't. Yes. No, I'm, I'm picking this very hypothetically. That's the idea. Oh, no, I know. But, you know, the, the majority of uh, NATO members, for example, have uh, have uh, ratified the Kampala amendments. But, you know, the carve out, as I called it, so that simply means we have everybody that is a national of a state that has not ratified the Rome statute is exempt from the jurisdiction. So that's what we're talking about here. And that's a lot of states. That's 70 states. And it's, of course, some of the largest and most uh, powerful states in the world, including, of course, the Russian Federation. And that's what we're talking about here. If, if Russia commits crimes against humanity or war crimes in Ukraine, the ICC has jurisdiction. If it commits aggression against Ukraine, as we all believe it has or, or it is doing, the ICC does not have jurisdiction. So that is the difference in the, in the jurisdictional regime. You know, as as a diplomat, your job is to make uh, agreements and, I guess, arrive at a consensus. How satisfied are you with the compromises that you had to make at the ASP in 2017 to get this through in the end? If you look back at it, do you think we did a tremendous thing because aggression actually came in? Or do you think now in light of Ukraine that already kind of you shepherded in this very big change and now the first kind of big conflict where it is in question, the ICC is kind of standing by. Uh, in, in the aggression bit, uh, let's say, uh, let's not suggest that the ICC is standing by. No, the activation decision in a way has 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 nothing to do with what we're discussing here, But the, because that only regulated the question, how is it between state parties? Now we're talking about the Russian Federation that is not a state party. We thought in 2018, the ASP should have taken a decision that is more straightforward and simple and uh, reflects uh, fully what uh, Kampala has decided. But, you know, the fact that the ICC has no jurisdiction over nationals of non-state parties, such as the Russian Federation, that is uncontested. And that was part of the deal in Kampala. In terms of those who've signed up to it, I mean, you say quite a few NATO uh, states have signed up. Um, many states in Latin America have signed up. But not very many in the African continent, for example, and as I said before, the uh, no P5. I mean, do you see it actually getting more universal gradually, or do you think that it will be difficult to, to get states to sign up? No, you know, the Kampala amendments have been successful in ratification. It's not the only set of amendments to the Rome Statute, and no other amendment has been ratified as, as widely as the Kampala amendments. So we certainly want more, and we're certainly reaching out to states to get more to sign on. But you have, of course, seen a level of lack of interest in the ICC in uh, certain regions of the world in the, in the past few years. And that is reflected, among other things, in the ratification process of all amendments. And when you talked about this uh, Ukraine situation there, you said we need an alternative mechanism. But what about the potential for changes to the Rome Statute? There was some suggestion, I mean, even uh, current prosecutor Karim Khan seemed to say that we shouldn't have this uh, mechanism, but they should amend the Rome Statute so that the ICC could have jurisdiction. We had uh, for another former ICC prosecutor, Luis Moreno Campo, arguing in Just Security that a simple revision of the Rome Statute would do the trick by removing the words by that state's nationals or. What do you think of those voices? We favor these revisions. 
we think that's important, but we don't think that's the way to address Ukraine because you don't have to have an agreement of everybody to, to do that, which is not a given. You also have to have, you know, the states to ratify those amendments. That will take probably close to 10 years because it is seven eighths of the 123 states that have ratified the Rome Statute that need to do that. We're strongly in favor of this approach because it will bring the jurisdiction in line with the jurisdiction over all the other crimes, which is the right thing to do. But it does not, you know, sufficiently address the Ukraine situation and it will certainly not be satisfactory to Ukraine or to anyone who wants to have an effective way to address this accountability gap here. We asked um, a couple of colleagues from Ukraine uh, whether they had some questions. One came in from the Ukraine Legal Action Group, and they wanted to know whether you know of any actual states' initiatives for amending the Rome Statute to actually do the amendment. Are you leading yourself a group of states to to work on this? No, we are not leading. I mean, nobody has proposed this uh, formally. Some of our colleagues have made it public that uh, that they support it, and we have said we will join this effort. So that is where we are as far as amending the Rome Statute. And then a second question in for, from them was whether you and maybe concerns that the ICC itself might be undermined by the development of this idea of a special tribunal that you know that it will divert resources away from the ICC and concentration away from the kind of work that is needed to put war crimes and crimes against humanity on trial. No, we're not concerned about that. We think this is action that is complementary to what the ICC does and actually supportive of what the ICC does, both in Ukraine and in the future. We do believe if we have an effective prosecution here and if we make sure there is no impunity for this act of aggression and people in parallel decide to give the ICC jurisdiction over this crime in the future, in whichever case, that will actually strengthen the end of the ICC. While this idea of maybe amending the Rome Statute is kind of bubbling in the background, let's turn to these discussions on this International Special Tribunal for Aggression. There's discussions behind the scenes at the UN General Assembly. Uh, we get the idea that there's a clear role that the EU is playing. What's your idea or analysis of what we could see emerge as a, a model? Do you think a UN uh, General Assembly a resolution creating a tribunal is feasible? We hear a lot of uh, African states kind of resisting that possibly. You know, the anniversary of the invasion is coming up. I'm sure a lot of people would like to have a nice announcement on the anniversary. How do you see that coming together? I mean, look, we look at this in terms of what is the goal here. And for us, the goal is prosecution of this crime in accordance with international law. And the international law says this is a leadership crime. You have read out the definition from Kampala before. That is the internationally agreed legal definition. And by the way, a definition that was negotiated with all states. So the Chinese were there, the Russians were there, everybody was there, and everybody agreed to that definition. This is the one international legal definition of what a crime of aggression is. It does say it is a leadership crime, which is why we believe we have to have a solution that makes it possible for this mechanism to prosecute the leaders, if they so choose. I mean, it's not up to me to say they will make their own decisions on basis of evidence and so on. But we do believe that the central issue here is to address the question of immunities, because you know certain political leaders do have immunities under 
national law. They cannot be prosecuted under Ukrainian law, for example. They could not be prosecuted under Liechtenstein law or under any other law. So we do have to find a solution that makes it possible to do this really in accordance with what international law says, namely that this is a leadership crime. For us, it's not a, that we have a political preference or a forum that we think that the Council of Europe is is a lesser forum than the, than the United Nations. But we are, you know, in our analysis, we are driven by what is what is the goal, what what is the one way that makes this credible and makes this effective. Because we do not believe that a solution that says, well, you know, you can prosecute the crime, but not the political leaders. We do not think that a wider public will understand that, and we don't think it's in accordance with the international law. Just to press you a little on what you're hearing in the corridors, though, in the United Nations, is there going to be a sufficient number, do you think, to support something that would lead towards it being a really international flavoured tribunal in order to get over that immunity hurdle that you're talking about? I think the answer to that is we don't know yet because we have not had these conversations because we have not, you know, among those who support accountability for the crime of aggression, we have not agreed on a unified approach on this. And of course, the ones who have to make the decision here and to lead us are the Ukrainians. You know, they have to say what they want. They have to give the policy guidance on this and then the rest of us can decide what our role is in this. So we have not been able to go to other states and talk in in any sort of specific details about what we're proposing because we don't we haven't agreed yet what we're proposing. Do I summarize the kind of legal discussion correctly to say that the idea is that if the UN General Assembly creates a tribunal there's precedent for that and we know it's international enough to kind of uh, not have to deal with functional immunities but if it becomes an EU decision or a Council of Europe or even bilateral agreements, then that might be up for discussion if it's quote unquote international enough so that it would allow immunities to be lifted for those most responsible. Uh, in this case, functional immunity would go to President Vladimir Putin and, and things like the Foreign Minister Lavrov and, and people like that. Yes, that is correct. I mean, our legal analysis leads to the conclusion that the one way to effectively address immunities is the creation of an international tribunal on the basis of a decision of the General Assembly that has the competence to do that. And we do not see another way. And, and of course, we're on, in ongoing conversation with our partners, but that is for us where we are. And we also had another question in from another Ukrainian. I know that you've said that it's really up to the Ukrainians, but you know, as an international lawyer, Katerina Busol was asking what, what your opinion is on what role victims would play in such a special tribunal on aggression. There's this sense that the crime of aggression is even much wider, more encompassing than individual war crimes or even widespread and systematic crimes against humanity. It really involves practically the whole Ukrainian population. And wondering, she's wondering, you know, how would a tribunal involve victims? What role should they play? Yes, it's a it's a very interesting question. We have discussed this also in, in May we did a we did a, an event at the Yale Club that uh, I don't know if you have seen the report of that summary. So that is addressed there. It is indeed, as you have said, this crime is quite different from the other crimes. Because you could even say the victim is international law because it it is an attack. It's it's the most 
blatant form of the illegal use of force. At the same time, of course, as you have said, in, in principle, the victim of aggression is every person who lived in Ukraine at the time or who lives in Ukraine at the time. In fact, you can also argue that people were forced to participate in this illegal act are also victims of this. So there's a very wide range of and the number of victims. And we hope, certainly, and we would think it extremely important that victims are allowed to participate in the proceedings and are given a voice in keeping with what has emerged as an international standard, because the International Criminal Court has very wide-ranging provisions for the participation of victims. And we think that, you know, should be the model while very much mutatis mutandis because the, the, the nature of the crime is different. And of course, the ICC hasn't had a prosecution of aggression so far. And I know you have to be diplomatic, but can you imagine that there would actually be such a special aggression tribunal and we would possibly see Vladimir Putin in The Hague? Like if you think 10 years down the line, do you think this is a kind of a Milosevic scenario where we all thought, or, or Milosevic is even less, uh, a Karadzic scenario where we thought it would never happen and then it happens in the end? Are you an international law optimist or are you a diplomatic realist? Of course, I'm an international law optimist. Otherwise, I wouldn't have you know, presided the Kampala conference. And I think it's extremely important to believe in the progressive development of international law. And I honestly believe that this is a critical juncture in the history of international law, because this is, you know, leaving all the other things aside that have happened. This is clearly the most blatant case of aggression that we have seen. And the General Assembly has called it that by overwhelming numbers. So we now have an opportunity to make it very clear that those who commit this crime, you know, will not enjoy impunity, not just in this case, but also for the future. So this goes far beyond Ukraine. So this is really a statement in for the protection of the international order reflected in the UN Charter. Christian, we want to say thank you very much for uh, coming on the podcast. And we always wrap up with a few final questions. And the first one is, is there something that we should have asked you that we failed to ask you? Was there a question when you looked through your list that, ha ha, they forgot to ask me this? No, no, I don't think so. I mean, you know, I, I think the there, there's two things here. Do you want to do it? And the answer seems to be yes among our partners. And then how do you want to do it? And for us to do this in accordance with international law and to make sure that the special tribunal, once created, can investigate and prosecute everybody that they believe has committed a crime, that is really key. So I don't think that a solution excluding the leadership from prosecution is a credible solution and that it's not in line with international law. So. I think we've covered the most important points here, yes. Our other question is, do you have a favorite court case, one that you like to tell people about or that you have to remember or that sparked your interest? It can be all kinds of things. We ask this of everybody. Some people have a favorite case that they like to teach. Somebody have a favorite case that they saw for the first time themselves. You know, I mean, the what inspired me certainly was Nuremberg long before even ever thought about being a diplomat. That is something that you know affected me very profoundly when I was uh, when I was a very young a very young person, and to see that and to see in fact that is what I think is so important about Nuremberg to see that the people, the individuals that thought they were untouchable, the people that had the largest share of responsibility, 
you know, for the wars they unleashed themselves, but also for the crimes against humanity they committed, that they were in the dock at Nuremberg. So that has, you know, that has affected me very, very profoundly when I was, whatever, a teenager. And our final question is, can you share with us anything that you've been reading recently or watching or listening to that you think might be of interest to our audience? It doesn't have to be in the field of international law. You could be watching the mushroom zombie apocalypse, The Last of Us on uh, on HBO, which is what I've been spending my odd spare time watching. Well, what do you what do you do in your in your non ambassadorial time? <laughs> well, I do read whenever I can, but most of what I read has to do with what we're discussing here. I've been uh, reading a lot of Cormac McCarthy recently, not his new books yet. So they are uh, they are on my stack, but that was very captivating reading for me. And uh, I like going to the movies and I've seen uh, a couple of great movies recently. One of my favorites was certainly The Banshees of Injuring that now seems to be liked by others as well, which is nice. But I also saw a very unknown movie that's called uh, Hangman Also Die by Fritz Lang. It's about the assassination of Heydrich um, in, uh, in 1942. And that was something that was very, very interesting for me for very, very different reasons. So... Yeah, a uh, Fritz Lang film. Interesting. I presume it's uh, it's not on general release. It must have been quite an interesting way of seeing it. It is in the quad in the quad cinema in New York. I mean, not to promote any particular movie there, but they have some of these old movies. But you know, I also saw the Turn Every Page movie, the documentary on Robert Caro, which is really wonderful and delightful and marvelous. So there's a lot of good things out there. Right. Well, thank well, you. Thank you for your recommendations. It's a pleasure. Thank you for your interest. Thank you. Thank you. Well, usually that's it from us and we usually just let the credits roll. But after we'd recorded this podcast, there came this long awaited announcement about prosecuting the crime of aggression. Yeah, we had a bit of a scoop here when we did the Philip Sands podcast, the number 62, black and white, Chagos at the ICJ. And here is Philip Sands already giving us a preview of what would happen. Watch this space. But very shortly, there is going to be an announcement about the possible setting up of a new institution in The Hague, an interim office of a special prosecutor for the crime of aggression in Ukraine. Yeah, and then we got it really heavily confirmed by Beth Van Schack, the US war crimes ambassador, when she was on our podcast number 73. The idea of this IPO would be to bring together kind of ace prosecutors, Ukrainians, but also potentially international experts, to start to collect evidence focused specifically on the crime of aggression and acts of aggression committed by Russia's forces. And now it appears that it's actually here. There's this new international center for the prosecution of the crime of aggression in Ukraine. It's being set up here in the in the Hague. The acronym, I mean, I'm kind of wondering myself if the UN residual mechanism MICT becomes the MICT for short, then what is this? Is this the ICPOCA or as Beth has it, is the IPO or the IPO. Anyway, Steph, tell us what we know about it. Well, what the EU has said so far is that it would be embedded in Eurojust and work from there, that it would have international and Ukraine prosecutors. Uh, they've said before that they want it to, it to cooperate with the ICC, but it's, it's all very vague. I think 
One of the things that stuck out to me is that they're calling it the new International Center for the Prosecution of the Crime of Aggression, while before both Philip Sands and Beth were talking about this IPO, the Interim Office of the Prosecutor. And I think it's telling that they haven't called it an interim office of the prosecutor. So they seem to have kind of stepped back a bit from what they initially wanted to have and really call it an interim office of the prosecutor. And I mean, I can't look behind the scenes, but my feeling is that there may be some concerns from other states that it's not really clear what the jurisdiction is, how exactly this new possible aggression tribunal will work. So we couldn't call it an office of the prosecutor. And how significant do you think it is that it's based at Eurojust? Because that's really one of the centres of coordination, because we have the ICC and a number of different states, all, as far as we understand, pooling their investigations and their materials on war crimes and crimes against humanity in Ukraine. So is that significant? I mean, it is the practical place to put it to coordinate. I do think that the ICC, while they are part of this joint investigation team of Ukraine war crimes investigations with Ukraine and other European states that have opened their own universal jurisdiction cases, it is a little bit removed from the Eurojust cooperation. The ICC, it's not going to be sharing its databases necessarily with the uh, Eurojust people. So, I don't know how much cooperation there is. I know everybody wants them to cooperate very much together. Uh, on the other hand, ICC prosecutor Kareem Khan has been quite vocal about that he thinks the crime of aggression should be dealt with with the ICC and people should maybe amend the Rome Statute so that they could do it. And he feels that it's a bit too scattered. So, well, I think the ICC will be cooperative, but it's kind of hard to see to what degree that is going to help them at this point. Well, I think this is very much something that's uh, a moving picture. So as we know more, we'll, uh, we'll bring you more. Watch this space. Watch this space. This was Asymmetrical Haircuts, your international justice podcast created and presented by Janet Anderson and Stephanie Vandenberg. This episode was recorded at the Hague Humanity Hub, home to a community of innovators in the field of peace, justice, development and humanitarian action. Music is by audionautics.com and you can find show notes and everything about the podcast on asymmetricalhaircuts.com. This show is available on every major podcast service, so please subscribe, give us a rating and spread the word. If you like our show, please consider supporting us. You can join us on Patreon. For as little as a few euros or dollars a month, you will get our exclusive War Criminals Book Club episodes, other goodies, and you earn yourself a shout out on the podcast. Look for the link on our webpage or go to patreon.com and search for asymmetrical haircuts.